This is Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus is resting place. For the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. For Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it in fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful, and Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth. And the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he, shall be for our God, and shall be like a leader in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, but now I have seen with my eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. For I have bent Judah my bow, fitted the bow with Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Then the Lord will be seen over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet and go with whirlwinds from the south. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with slingstones. They shall drink and roar as with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they shall be like the jewels of a crown lifted like a banner over his head, over his land. For how great is its goodness and how great is its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. Now when we come to Zechariah chapter 9, we've come to a major break in this book of Zechariah. You know that the first eight chapters, the majority of the book, have mainly in various ways to do with this great task that was assigned to them, their generation, the task of rebuilding God's house, the temple. And there were various powerful visions involved to reinforce these things. But that was always the point one way or another. It was that their hands might be strengthened for that task, as we saw last time. But now the scope is greatly expanded. And here in chapter 9, we're not just dealing with uh, Jerusalem. We're not just dealing with the people and the task at hand. We're dealing with uh, the other nations. We're dealing with events that were to come in the future. The first part has to do with prophecies regarding the humbling of the nations round about Israel. 
And then the second part has to do with prophecies about the coming Messiah. It's great highlight, as you'd probably guess, in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And we know that that was precisely fulfilled in the Gospels, in the New Testament, in the coming of Christ. But tying both of those things, both of those aspects together is the idea, the reality that God is sovereign over all things and that he will soon establish his reign in this world. Well, the title of the sermon is The King is Coming, and we have four points. One, he will humble the proud. Two, he will come in peace to Jerusalem. Three, he will uphold his people. And four, he will extend his reign. He will humble the proud. He will come in peace. He will uphold his people, and he will extend his reign. First, he will humble the proud. We read in verse 1, the burden of the Lord against. And there's been some debate, I guess, uh, among scholars as to whether this should be um, the idea of merely an oracle, which is very neutral, or whether it should be burden. But the evidence suggests that it's a burden. And what that means is that this is against someone. This is a negative situation. It is a prophecy against someone. Whom? Well, the list of nations round about Israel is given. Not the far off ones. It has nothing to do with Babylon. It, it has to do with the ones nearby in the Holy Land. And what is particularly noted regarding them is their pride. Verse 2, against Tyre and Sidon, although they are very wise, for Tyre built herself a tower heaped up, like, heaped up silver like the dust and gold like the mire of the streets. And what is, that's speaking of two things. Uh, the Phoenicians were very good at trading. They had a lot of money, and they did indeed build up gigantic reserves of silver and gold. So they were lifted up in their pride because they were so successful and so wealthy. And the other aspect of it that is spoken of, this, um, this idea of building a tower, that's their island fortress. About a, a mile offshore, they had this island um, that was built up as a fortress. It was already pretty uh, difficult to, to attack just being, being a mile offshore. But to add to it, they had this double seawall, and they lifted up a, a tower and all the rest of it. It was, it was a big fortress, and it was not easy to destroy this fortress. To the point which, you remember, of course, Israel, half of it was the, the uh, one kingdom of it was destroyed by the Assyrians, the other one by the Babylonians. Both of those empires actually tried to do the same to Tyre, but were unable to. Uh, the Assyrians, let's see, they, they tried for five years to take it, but the Babylonians for, for 13 until they gave up, and that was the end of that. So you can imagine that such a city, such a fortress, would be lifted up in their pride. No one can touch me. No one can rebuke me. No one can hold me to account. Well, what the Lord says about it is, in verse 4, The Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. We'll see soon if that came to pass. But the idea is that these prideful ones are going to be brought low. And as for the others, for instance, in verse 5, Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful. And Ekron, he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza. And Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. That sums it all up. All these Philistine nations, you know there are these five cities that are listed here. And those are the ones besides Tyre and Sidon that are particularly being noted here. And it's all about their pride. And he says, you have this pride. You're lifted up in pride. But I am able 
to bring it down low. And that's exactly what happened. Now, in point of fact, these things were actually completely and remarkably fulfilled a century and a half later, in the 4th century, in the conquest of Alexander the Great. Uh, in the case of Tyre, this impregnable iron, iron, island fortress, which I mentioned, which these other magnificent world powers were unable to do anything about, Alexander built a causeway out to the island, and in seven months he had taken the one that the previous empires could not take in five or 13 years, and he burned it to the ground. Exactly the words that were said were exactly what happened, and so much for all their pride. Now, we know that Alexander is not mentioned. He's not in any way described. It does not say that some young prodigy of a general is going to have some remarkable, incredible run in which he conquers pretty much a whole known world of his day. All it says is that God is going to do these things. It doesn't talk about the method. It doesn't talk about any way in which it's going to happen. And I'm sure that perhaps the people of the day wondered how that would be possible. You know, if they're, wow, so Tyre's going to be burnt down to the ground. That's interesting. These other magnificent world powers were unable to do it no longer how much time they they were there trying to accomplish it. I wonder how that's going to happen. All God says, though, is that it will, and it did. And I think what it says in the larger picture is that he is able to put down the proud. You know, in Mary's Magnificat, in Luke 1.51, he has shown strength in his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. That is what God does. He scatters the proud in the imagination of their hearts as people lift themselves, starting way back with Satan, right? He was lifted up in his imagination, lifted up in his pride, and God was able to bring him low. In fact, remember that curse that was particularly given to the serpent, that he'd go on the, bell, in, on the dust on his belly for all of his day, no longer lifted up physically, but 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 humbled in that way. Well, this is God's great business. He will humble the proud. But secondly, he will come in peace to Jerusalem because he's speaking about those who are lifted up in pride against him. But what about his own humble people, the people that, that love him and, and serve him? Well, it's, it's very different for them. In verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, what is, what is the sense that we get from a donkey? In what way is this a display of humility? Well, you could take it too far in saying that it's, it's about poverty. It's not quite that. Um, in fact, we know that there were kings and judges and other rulers and princes of Israel who used to ride around in donkeys uh, particularly in the book of Judges, as mentioned several times, as well as more ordinary people like prophets. Uh, they're also mentioned as having been riding on donkeys. But I think the best way of thinking about it is just it was ordinary. That's what it was. It was an ordinary mode of transportation. It's not particularly exalted, nor was it you know, particularly abased. It was just ordinary. And mainly, and more importantly than that, that aspect of the humility is that it's just not something you would ride into battle. Even if a king on one day might be, could pick whether he's going to ride on a donkey or a stallion, and if he's coming in peace someplace, he's coming in a donkey. He, he wouldn't, on the other hand, come to war uh, on the back of a donkey. It's a symbol of coming in peace. 
And I think that contrast is shown in the next verse, in verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. You see, these were instruments of war, a chariot. If he came in a chariot, you better watch out. If he came in a war horse, oh no. But rather, he's coming humbly on a donkey because he's bringing peace. He's speaking peace to the people. And that was something to rejoice in. I, I hope we can see that. Because it wasn't always the case with Jerusalem. You know, of course, there, were, there was another day that the people in Zechariah's day remembered in which an army came. They didn't come humbly on donkeys. They came in chariots and their war horses, and they came to destroy that nation. And they did. And the fact is, of course, that they didn't deserve much better in their own day. And we can be amazed, in fact, as we look in the Gospels of when this was fulfilled, we can be amazed that Christ actually came in peace to Jerusalem because he would have been well within his rights. And particularly by the time he actually came, after being rejected and after being blasphemed so many times, as we mentioned some of these this morning, he would have been well within his rights to say, okay, enough of the donkey. I know about this prophecy, but it's time for a chariot, a war horse, and put an end to this wicked and grateful people. But he didn't. What amazing thing that he came to his people, humble on that donkey coming in peace. And we should remind ourselves of these things constantly. By the way, it's just worth noting that unlike the case of every other city of any note in that region, Jerusalem was not destroyed in the time of Alexander in the 4th century. Every one of the rest of them were in one way or another utterly brought low, subdued. But we're told in Josephus that Alexander was given some sort of uh, dream in which he was um, told about the high priest of Jerusalem and instead came in a peaceful terms to, to come meet him. We don't know of the, the truth of the explanation. All we know is the end effect was that Jerusalem wasn't uh, destroyed at that point by Alexander. It was protected. Now, the prophecy was fulfilled in, in John chapter 12, You remember from the John series, And Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. We actually don't have many accounts in the Gospels. For three years, on four different Gospels we have, we don't have many accounts, actually, of him being riding on anything. As I mentioned, um, a donkey was not a symbol of anything you know, particularly high, but neither was it for the poor. They couldn't afford a donkey. And Jesus, who had nowhere to lay his head, probably didn't have the wherewithal to have a donkey. And so, in fact, he is, um, at this, this opportunity, he's on a borrowed donkey in fulfillment with, of this prophecy as he comes to Jerusalem. In his humility, yes, is a state of humility, and the, the borrowed donkey. Now, Matthew Henry says this about it. The king has long been in coming, but now, behold, he cometh. He is at the door. There are but a few ages more to run out, and he that shall come will come. He cometh unto thee. The word will shortly be made flesh and dwell within thy borders. He will come to his own. Therefore rejoice, rejoice greatly, and shout for joy. He's referring to the fact that that by the time of Zechariah, there wasn't all that much, given the grand scope of, of history, biblical history, there wasn't that much time left to run until Messiah came. There was a few centuries to go, but still... It wasn't uh, the millennia that it once was. And likewise with us, I, I think we would say the same thing. You know, there is much less time now 
for the king to come in his finality than when Zechariah spoke, much less time when, than when the prophecy was first fulfilled, when he came to Jerusalem riding on that donkey. And we should, should be in expectation of these things. The same and much more could be said with us concerning the second coming of Christ, that he is at the door. And he says that. He is at the door. Well, we praise God that even as he's able to bring the pride low, he is able to come in peace to Jerusalem. He did and he shall do. And thirdly, he will uphold his people. As it doesn't end with the the triumphal entry, his protection over his people will continue. It says in verse 8, I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and who, he who returns. No more shall an impressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. And I'd like you'd, you'd almost then expect me to say, as these other things have been fulfilled in all their perfection, uh, you know, with the other, with the, say, Alexander or something like that. And so it was that Jerusalem was never again occupied by an opposing army. But we know that's not true. We know that's not true at all. And in fact, in A.D. 70, the Romans utterly destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. In fact, to a greater extent than had been done in the past. Utterly to the ground, not one stone lying upon another, utterly wiped out. And so we know then that this language could not be speaking in mere physical terms about Jerusalem. Because beyond the point at which Christ comes and riding on his donkey into Jerusalem, now the church is throughout the world. And now the focus shifts from a particular place through the church. And what he's now speaking of the prophecy that has been and shall be fulfilled is God's protection over his people. He will not allow them to be crushed. And I think that can be seen very much in the history of the, the early church as the Romans, well, first the, the, the Jewish people, but uh, more particularly the Roman government sought to wipe them out. And really, under, under some of those empire, emperors, that was, that was the agenda to destroy the Christians. And they were unable to do that. Rather, the church continued to grow and continued to grow, despite the very worst efforts of those in absolute power of the day. And we should remind ourselves of this. Well, that's the way I'm taking then the language that goes on, not only in verse 8, but in verse 15. The Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corner of the altar. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. For they shall be like the jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his land. Isn't that wonderful? You hear yourself being described as, a, as jewels in a crown. It's a, a flattering portrait. We know it's not the way that we are in ourselves, but what Christ makes us to be. And we can, we can certainly understand that if Christ himself is the image of the invisible God, like some infinite diamond in all of its beauty and all of its facets of perfection, we are being transformed into that. We are being made into that. We are being built up as precious stones in his new temple. And he's not going to just let us be crushed. He's not just going to let us be stolen away by his enemies. He cares about us. You know, there's more language of that going on. The beauty of the church in verse 17. For how great is the goodness and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. He's extolling the beauty of his people, extolling the beauty of his church. You know, we've got a whole book about that. Some people don't read it very much, but you ought to. It's called the Song of Songs. 
And it's all, a, it's a love story. It's not a, it's not a, 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 a secular romance. It's a love story between the Lord Jesus Christ and his people, the church. And when Christ looks at us, you know, we can understand, I hope we understand, just how beautiful Christ is. I hope that we can look to him and say that he is altogether lovely, as the scripture says. And there is nothing repulsive but everything attractive and wonderful and beautiful about him. And we understand the language about him. But what gets me, what is kind of hard for me, has always been hard, and I'm still working on to accept fully, is that all the other language... In his lips, the lips of the king, the the lips of Christ, is about us, about me, about you, his people. He, He finds us attractive. He really does love us. He finds us altogether lovely. He sees no flaw. He sees no fault in us. Again, he's seen us as he makes us. We know that. What a wonderful thing that he sees great beauty in Zion. And he sees us as lovely and as we're so valuable to him. That's why he's protecting us. Because we're very valuable to him. And he wouldn't let anything happen to his beautiful bride. And so we're going to be upheld. We're going to be protected. We're beautiful to him. We're the apple of his eye. And no one's going to be able to touch the apple of his eye. Well, that's with the speaking of Jerusalem, but I think it's worth saying then in our fourth point that he will extend his reign. It's not just for Jerusalem itself. There's other elements of God's people, as I mentioned. In uh, verse 11, it says, for instance, and for you, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. And this is speaking to those who remained outside of the land of of Israel, those who were stranded in other places, and he refers to their place. Now remember, he once told them, this is where you're supposed to be for these 70 years. In fact, go and make houses for yourself and build, uh, make vineyards and olive trees and all the rest of it because you're going to have to be here for a while. You're going to have to be here for 70 years. But now he describes other places other than his own land as these um, uh, waterless pits, not places of blessing. And he's going to do it because of the blood of your covenant. Now, we are reminded, isn't it, that there is one covenant that runs throughout the the whole of the Old Testament into the New, this covenant of grace that God has made with us, and it is always a covenant of blood. As there was the Passover in the Old Testament and in the shedding of blood and and putting that on the, the doorpost and the angel of death would pass over and the people would be saved, so, of course, it's pointing to Christ's blood. And everything that God does, everything that he does on our sake, in every way that he rescues us, it's because of the blood of the covenant. There's no basis in ourselves for him doing it. But because of the blood of the covenant, he will do absolutely anything and everything to save his people. And he will bring us into his stronghold, even these prisoners of hope, as we're described. And it's not just so, in that sense, those refugees, but we see in verse 10, he will extend his reign beyond that because he will speak peace to the nations. And that's a little bit less expected in this context. Destroying all the pagan nations round about, that's, that's understandable. We can understand how God is going to destroy them. But speaking peace to the nations, that's unexpected. And the reason is because that the reign of this coming king will not be small. 
the, the, the land of Israel is not enough for this king. He must have, in fact, all the nations. All, he must have people from every tribe and tongue under heaven. His dominion will not be limited in space or time. But rather, it says that his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, covering the whole world. And do you know that's true? Do you know that that's actually happened? We sometimes are so focused on our situation today that we imagine that worldwide, Christianity is at some low ebb. It's not true. It's the opposite. There are more Christians by far now than what there was in any other time. And it continues to grow day by day, year by year. And its extent over the whole world continues to grow. And we praise God for it. We even have representatives of some of these many nations among us. A reminder that God is continuing to extend his, his reign. And he must. He will. Nothing can stop that. It's going to continue to extend. And we know in this time of year from Isaiah 9-7... Speaking of the Messiah, that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. We, of course, rightly point to the verse that says uh, in Matthew that that, uh, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But we might as well say Isaiah 9-7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. We should not be those who are in, in constant fretfulness and biting our nails as to whether the, the church will survive another decade. It's, it, the, the Lord himself is going to make this happen. It's impossible, but that his reign will continue to extend until the end comes. Well, he will extend his reign. How do we learn from this? What sort of application do we make from ourselves? I would say, first of all, that we should learn from examples, both good and bad. In the bad sense, we learn from the fact that God can humble the proud. He is, as I say, in the business of humbling the proud. He has done so. If he could do it to Tyre, he can, he can do so to others. He did it to compromise in Jerusalem, not just to the pagans. He humbled them in their pride. And perhaps, just maybe, he has humbled you in your pride. Maybe you can remember how he, in various ways, has humbled you out of your pride. And if not, by the way, he certainly will. At some point, you can be certain, every knee will bow to Christ, one way or another. The preferable way is certainly to do that now in faith, as his word is spoken to you, that you receive it in faith and humility. But he will bring all of us low. And we should remember those examples. We should store them up in our minds and consider as we begin to lift ourselves up in pride, what happens to those who are prideful? What does God say is going to happen to me if I lift myself up in pride? He has humbled me, and he will do it in the future. In Isaiah 2.12, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. That's really another way of thinking about all the nations in the rebellion against God. These are those who are lifted up in their pride. Another way of thinking of Christians is those who are humble, those who submit and tremble at his word and put their faith in his Messiah and bow the knee to him. Now, what should we do what, if, if God is in that business of bringing the, uh, the, the pride low? Well, we should, to paraphrase Micah 6.8 just slightly, we should embrace the gospel of grace. That's what that, that Hebrew word means. Live according to God's law and walk humbly before him. It's not hard. Embrace the gospel of, of grace, live according to God's law, and walk humbly before him. 
We also, I think, can learn from good examples. You know, we live in fear of so many things. We in this day, I think particularly, seem so small and despised. And the unbelieving world around us is entrenched in the halls of power. And we don't ever imagine how that's ever going to change. And how could God rescue us? Even if he wanted to, how could he do it? Because that's impossible. The forces of atheism are so firmly entrenched, it will never happen. Well, as I say, we have to learn from examples in the past. If God could send um, a means by which God's people would be rescued, not only in the sense that he could bring the, the pagan nations around down in, from their pride into humility, but also to save them from Alexander's army in, in a strange way that, that we don't know the details of, but somehow it worked. Well, he could do the same for us. And let us not think that God is unable then to rescue us from our situation and to utterly reverse the, the reality that now prevails. Secondly, I say don't lay up treasures on earth. We sort of passed over this briefly, but you remember that Tyre was known for building, having all this, this uh, silver like the dust of the ground and, and gold everywhere. And the question is, what did it profit them? To, what did it profit them? I, I, what did it do for them? when Alexander and his army came and invaded them and took them over and burned them down to the ground. It actually didn't do them any good at all. And we should remember what it says in Matthew 6.19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there we will heart be also. You can imagine how different it would be if instead of treasuring up their, their silver and gold and putting their trust in it, I'm sure they thought, well, as long as we have this silver and gold, we can send our ships out and they can trade with other people and bring us the supplies we need and we'll never have any problems. We're all, we'll always be set, just like that rich farmer who built his bigger barns and said, to take your ease, my soul, because you have stored up many goods for many days. And we don't need anything. We don't need God. How different it would have been for them, those inhabitants of Phoenicia, if they had put their trust in the living God instead. And he would have saved them as he saved Jerusalem. No, our, our treasure needs to be in heaven. And we know that where our treasure is, our heart will be also. And that is a blessed thing, to have treasure where no one can take it. Thirdly and finally, we ought to live in, in hopeful, joyful expectation of the king's return. Uh, I just I think to myself how inappropriate it is for a people to be either indifferent or um, forgetful about the coming of their king. Okay, uh, in, in both of those situations, if if the if the monarch has uh, explained. Let's say in our case, let's say that the, the queen is, is coming and said on, on our schedule, there's a, a, a visitation of Gateshead Presbyterian Church. All right. Now, more than likely, we would bear that in mind. And more than likely, there would be some kind of expectation of that, right? And if, on the other hand, we were utterly blasé about that and, and mindless about it, well, she might take offense and, and probably rightly so. But vastly, vastly, vastly more would be the case of the Lord Jesus Christ. He keeps telling us he's coming quickly. He said it more than once. Almost one of the last words of the Bible. Behold, I am coming quickly. 
He means it. And as it says in, in Revelation 16:15, not that we're going to know this, the precise timing of this. It's at any moment. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked, then they see his shame. Blessed is he who watches. We're watchful about this. In expectation, not saying, you know, things are so great right now that I don't really care if the Lord comes or not. That's, that's kind of derogatory to him, isn't it? This king that is coming to set his people free and to give them a, an everlasting kingdom to be, for us to be careless about that? And what if, well, well, I'm so busy with things now I can barely think of the Lord's return. It's not something that comes to my mind. Well, again, I think that's rather derogatory as well. Mars is a great king. And one who has not let us forget and will not let us forget he is returning. And we should have before us that hopeful expectation that he's coming to us. And praise God, he's coming to us in peace. Although for the others, it is not so. And in that way, our expectation should drive us to our knees to pray for the salvation of those around us. Because, as we know, he's coming to Jerusalem in peace. But it will be otherwise for those who have not yet bowed that knee. And so, in whatever way you take it, the most useful spiritual thing that you can do for yourself is to live in that constant, ongoing expectation of Christ's return. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word that recalls us to yourself. That's what it does. And Lord, how we pray that through the Holy Spirit it would dwell richly in our hearts that we would well consider how you were able to fulfill these prophecies, of which no doubt the people of the time could not imagine how you could possibly do these things. But, Lord, you did. And, Lord, you are indeed accomplishing the fullness of these things even now. As Christ came humble, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, and then he laid down his life, only to pick it up again in the third day and... Lord, he lives forevermore and he reigns. And his reign, his kingdom on earth, his church continues to grow and to grow. And Lord, how we pray that we would live not in anxiety, not in fear, but in joyful anticipation of greater things to come and in lively, right expectation of Christ's return. Pray, Heavenly Father, that we would indeed walk in humble faith before him and that, Lord, you would preserve and bless us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.